Thought Lounge podcast. We're very excited to bring to you our We Need to Talk series, which is about conflicting perspectives presented side by side with the utmost respect for one another. In these series, we feature five or six diverse guests asking and answering some of the most disquieting questions of our time. Each episode is one question posed by one of the guests. In these series, we try to present all of our guests as amazing people, because they are, as you will soon find out. That said, we also strive to seek out the most diverse group that we can, with an emphasis on giving voice to less heard, but commonly held perspectives. Our guests represent farmers, CEOs, academics, lawyers, writers, Italians, Latinos, Pacific Islanders, Korean Americans, conservatives, liberals, gay people, straight people, trans people, and I could go on. We've brought these people together expressly because they hold different perspectives, and it is a core tenet of Thought Lounge to recognize that creative conflict is good. Put another way, for us and for our listeners, we hope that it is mutually understood that when our guests disagree with one another, they are disagreeing with each other's ideas, not each other's entire selves. Our guests in this series are Stephanie Coughlin, Justin Brooks, Mauro Cifuentes, Brian Kim, and Lori Sulpizio. Stephanie is the CEO of Seabreeze Organic Farm in San Diego, and her question will be on food production. Justin is the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project, and he will be asking a question on prison systems. Mauro is the youth program manager at the Family Violence Law Center, and will be asking a question on sexual violence. Brian Kim is a writer for California Magazine. The topic of his question is American morality. And finally, Lori, who poses the question today, is a professor at the School of Leadership and Education Sciences at USD, and is the CEO and founder of the Lotus Leadership Institute. So without further ado, let's get into it. Lori presented this question. Leadership continues to be viewed as the same thing as roles of authority, and leadership roles are still held predominantly by white heterosexual males. Why is the concept of leadership still associated so strongly with men? What will it take for us to embrace a non-masculinized view of leadership and begin to open leadership up to women? Why is the concept of leadership very white-centered, and what will it take for us to fully embrace leaders of color? First up to answer this question is Lori herself. Enjoy! Goodness, I asked all that? Yeah, all of that, <laughs> and I've had to ask it to every single person. <laughs> like 16 questions on that. Um, no, it's been good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, um, unfortunately, I think, you know, history and the telling of history hasn't been our friend in terms of humanity's friend. And I think about that a lot in witnessing my kids who are ages 14 to 6 and in between and seeing what they are being presented in their history classes and, you know, social studies and such. And unfortunately, the stories that we were told and that still get told, I think, are of a white male-centered perspective. And it's those stories that we hear about, you know, the battles and the generals. We don't often hear what the women were doing, what the children were doing, what the people of color were doing when, you know, the battles were going on. And, um, and so I think from that historical perspective, we have crafted this concept of leadership, you know, being a white male type activity. Um, and it has shifted and it is shifting, but, but it's still really deep seated in the understanding of leadership. And when you think of, even when we, when we listen to people talk about leadership, it's making tough decisions. It's strong enough to lead. It's being decisive. And, 
Um, you don't often hear other qualities like being compassionate, you know, taking time for reflection. More and more we're starting to, but it still makes people wince. I mean, so thinking about a quote, commander in chief who needs to deal with, uh, you know, another country with a more aggressive leader in that country, it's like being reflective and compassionate. It's like, no, 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 no. We need to be strong and ready to, you know. And I think that's the problem. One of the problems right there is just it's our perspective on how we solve what is needed to solve the problem. Um, and so because we're looking at qualities that are typically associated with masculine qualities, decisive, aggressive, assertive, dominant, we see then men fitting into those roles. Right? So we need a shift, right? And it's, it is starting. So there's been a lot more theories around relational leadership, collaborative leadership, servant leadership. So it's starting to take hold in books and in kind of academic circles. It hasn't fully translated to widespread um, corporate America world. Um, but more and more young people and the companies they start are having different models of how they set up their, the structure of their company. You know, this idea of a more kind of connected and collaborative, um, you know, executive type um, hierarchy or lack of hierarchy. And so I think there's the hope that we can do it differently, but we're still rooted in a fallback of when everything hits the fan, we need someone who's decisive and strong and assertive. And until we shift that, I think it's going to be problematic. The other piece that doesn't necessarily have to do with the roles specifically is socially, culturally, the way that we still view women and treat women, it doesn't hold them up to value them for their agency and for their intelligence and for their competence and for their ability to do um, you know, big, tough jobs. We see it in Hollywood. I mean, have you seen the movie Misrepresentation? That would be one I would say, you know, it's an older one, but it's one that talks about how um, we still value women for their looks and for their body and for essentially the role they can play for males, right? And it's kind of a very heterosexual oriented media and world. And if you notice Hollywood and movies and TV shows, once a woman you know, is in her late 30s, she kind of, you know, flops off in terms of being um, cast for roles, you know, even with older men like, you know, Robert Redford and Jack Nicholson, they'll be paired with women 20 years younger as their mate, you know, so it begs the question is, and what's the value of women even as they age, right? So if it, this is a group that we don't value, you know, or if we value them just for their looks, well, then how are we going to put them into doing the biggest, most important jobs in our country? Um, and so I think it's there's a dual piece. One is this leadership piece and the concept of leadership and how we understand it and shifting how we understand it and what it means to do leadership, which is coming. And then the other piece is how we treat women and how men, you know, the gender dynamic. And so both those pieces need to be in place and slowly start to shift for us to fully see um, females capable of doing leadership in the exact same way as men do. Um, and when I say the exact same way, the hope would be that we can um, not so rigidly assign masculine to male and feminine to female, but we can become a more integrated person to say, every human man or woman has access to those masculine qualities and those feminine qualities and can use them when necessary. So there's absolutely a time for decisiveness and assertiveness. And I hope men and women have that. 
And there's absolutely a time for reflection and compassion. And I hope men and women have that. So can we just train people to do good leadership, right? Irregardless of male, female, and then get to know yourself. What comes easier for you? You know, what do you need to work on? What's your liability? You know, when you get triggered, where do you go? Because you want to know that as you're doing leadership. So can we shift away from kind of leadership being a thing of more masculine, traditionally masculine, aggressive, assertive, dominant, you know, power over and say, no, that's not really what the best leader, that's not what the world needs. That's not what our companies need. That's not what our communities need. We need to do a little differently and we can do men, have men and women do it and we need to train people differently. And if we can approach it that way. Um, so from the gender part, I think that there's one piece of the question. <laughs> that is, um, I think the other, I didn't kind of answer the, we still, we still as a culture think leadership and authority the same. I mean, right. So the boss is a leader and there's more as kind of at USD, we're trying to say, um, and other institutions like that's not exactly, they're not the same thing. Right. So I think if we can view them differently, there is a boss, there is a Senator, there is a president that person may or may not do leadership. Here's what leadership is, you know, management important, leadership important, they're different. Your role and how you take up your role and the power and the resources you have with your role, super important. That's one skill set. Leadership is another skill set. Let's train all these different skill sets and start to tease out the nuances. I think that will also help with gender and race, people of color, because we will start to break down the thought that those in these roles are doing leadership, you know? So if we can separate those and say, this is what is needed for leadership, let's see who can best fill it. It no longer becomes a product of the white male. Who are your role models? Or who, who, who would you say, not maybe not yours, but who do you think we sh are some examples of great leaders who are not white heterosexual males that we can look up to? Yeah. Or white heterosexual males who take on feminine yeah, yeah. other qualities? Or, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so I think... Um, well, I, I mean, I love Maya Angelou. I think part, and part of, I think it's so it's role models and then those that practice. I don't think she set out to do leadership in that way, right? But she, because she lived so purely and her message kind of was an authentic one for humanity, like, you know, from her true self on the basis of what would make a great humanity, I think she did leadership. I mean, right, so that she is an example of one who does leadership, even though she never set out to be, quote, a leader, right? Um, so she's one. I mean, I'm I, I'm big into kind of authors and writers. I, I, I personally really like Virginia Woolf and kind of paving a lot of the women writers who kind of paved the way in this sort of room of your own, find your authentic voice. I think with women's leadership and women in general, finding themselves in a society that doesn't always celebrate or value their voice, kind of those people, those women who were able to speak to that and find a way to get that kind of through publicly, to me are, are my role models. So, you know, certainly Virginia Woolf, the Maya Angelou's, um, and I think with, you know, males, most recently, I mean, one thing I appreciate from Barack Obama is he feels real, you know, like I, I get what everybody else gets, which is kind of the TV and the new, you know, so I don't know the man, but he feels real to me. And it feels like he is doing his best to make attempts to do things that he thinks are best for the country, you know, and it's like, 
I use the example of Obamacare, whether that particular program in its exact form is what's best, I don't know, but I appreciate the attempt to address our healthcare issue, right? I mean, I feel like in Washington, there's enough smart people that we should be able to do better in our healthcare, right? That was an attempt. We try it. It doesn't, let's see how it works. Let's look at it. Then let's shift it if we need to. You know what I mean? Like, it's, why are we beholden? And then to say, oh, this is so terrible. So I feel like his example, like his, he attempt, made attempt. Like, that's the best we can, right? What more can we ask? But try something. Try to, try to change it. Try to fix it. Offer something. And then if it doesn't work, be willing to say this didn't work as well as I thought. You know, that was my best then. But now I know a little more. So now let's shift it. It doesn't mean you are a failure, <laughs> stupid and horrible. It just means now you've learned and let's go forward, right? So um, for that, I appreciate him. You know, I appreciate him. I think, um, again, not knowing but only reading people like, you know, someone like a Peter Senge who can write books like The Fifth Discipline and Presence and those kind of men who are saying we need to do it differently, and who are acknowledging and writing about ways that our current corporate structure, social structure, you know, isn't working the best. Um, so I like, and I think there are men that are doing that, white men. I just wish we'd listen to them more, you know, and they wouldn't get dismissed or they wouldn't be kind of in this alternative way. Um, yeah, I mean, there's always your typicals like your Mother Teresa's and your Martin Luther King's, and I think those people do embody what leadership is without authority, you know, just addressing a really hard problem and be willing to hang in there even when it gets ugly. So I think we need more of, of those folks that are willing to do that. Um, the Gloria Steinem's, you know, who hung in there and addressed tough problems and said, I'm not backing down. Even for that matter, you know, I'm gonna say like Hillary Clinton and all she's done and how she went through, all she went through went through the, you know, showed up after the election and gave her final speech kind of with grace and dignity. It's like, all right, you know, I mean, I find a lot of inspiration in that. And her kind of message, never stop believing that, you know, doing what's right is worth fighting for. I mean, I think we need to, those kind of messages, because it's hard to do what's right, because you get knocked down and knocked down again. But, you know, if we have people kind of telling us, get up and keep going, you know, it's worth it. I think that's, that's leadership to me. That was Lori Sulpizio on Bias in Leadership. Next up is Stephanie Coughlin, the CEO of Seabreeze Organic Farm in San Diego. People that are qualified step into the positions. If you're qualified, there's no, there's, there's no laws against stepping into these positions. They're available if you're qualified, correct? And if you're a politician and you get elected, that's our system. I, I don't feel an outrage on this one. That was Stephanie Coughlin. Next up is Justin Brooks, the co-founder and director of the California Innocence Project. I mean, we, we learn most of what we learn in the first four years of our life. I think it's something like 80%. Um, babies are just sponges for information. So, you know, the first two years while they're learning to speak a language fluently, they're also learning how to walk, how to use, how to drink from a bottle, who mom is, who dad is. And all this conditioning and programming happens as children. 
and it's very hard to undo programming. So these kinds of things carry on because generation to generation, that's what you see. You see it on television and movies and books and the people around you. So it's a long process to change those types of stereotypes and ideas. Um, the time I actually thought about this question the most was watching Survivor. Because if you watch the show Survivor, which I have since the first season, every single season, because I love group dynamics and they fascinate me. There's been several times on that show where women were in the majority and they've all gotten together and said, we're in the majority. Let's vote out all the guys. That way we'll be in a better position to compete in these athletic competitions against each other than having these guys in there. And it's been clear in the situation that for the women, it's the right decision to make. Clear out all the guys and then compete against each other. Every single time, at least one of the women goes to one of the guys and turns on the rest of the women. And it is exactly this kind of thing of this seeing these guys as patriarchs and leaders and feeling uncomfortable in this role. Now, it's certainly not true for all women. Definitely not. Though there wouldn't be people like Hillary Clinton in the world who can aspire to be president. So there wouldn't be Margaret Thatcher in the world. But there's, it is a slow process to change society. And I think it actually comes from both sides. It's men and women who both have this sense of this is what a man should be doing. And this is what a woman should be doing. And the same thing with, with white people and being in the majority and the sense of white people have been leading this stuff for a while and running this company. And can I see a person of color in that same position? Well, the longer you've not seen them in the position, the more comfortable you feel like that's the way it should be. So we have to kind of uncondition that. So we, we all, no matter how enlightened we believe we are, have built-in biases, prejudices, stereotypes that then play out in ways that we're not even aware of, of things that we're doing. And this is certainly one of them. Um, you, get, you get the thing that um, men and women both feel more comfortable with male pilots on planes. Now, why is that? It's just a conditioning thing from your whole life because most of the time when you see pilots, they're men. And most of the time you hear men, and now this person's in charge of my life, <laughs> flying this plane. So I feel more comfortable with a man being in that. And it's, it's a ridiculous stereotype that makes no objective sense whatsoever. But it's a feeling thing that's been ingrained, and then it plays out. That was Justin Brooks. Next up is Mauro Cifuentes, the youth program manager at the Family Violence Law Center. I mean, honestly, I think that you know, our concept of leadership is still so strongly associated with white men because it is white men's concept of leadership. You know, standing up in front of a group of people and having everyone look at you while you speak and having them nod their heads and say yes. You know, it's like all of these ideas of what authority and power and, you know, agency look like are shaped through, you know, middle and upper middle class white men's experiences, how they want to be thought of, how they want to project their power out back to the world. And that that has become our sole definition of leadership, right? Is the person who's at the head of something, the person who you see as, you know, sharing the information and guiding people. But I think there are so many different kinds of leadership. I think that's a very visible form of leadership. But I think that there's, you know, some other examples are like thought leadership, right? Who's asking, you know, the challenging questions that make us 
rethink our approaches, right? I think there's critical leadership, right? There are the people who are always like poking the holes in what we do to help us recognize that we could be doing it better. You know, I think that there's logistical leadership. I think there are people behind the scenes who like make stuff happen, right? It's like we've got a president, right? But the president is just one person. And I think there are a lot of shows that are popping up now that show all the different people that you know, contribute to making the president look as good as they do, right? So those forms of leadership aren't nearly as valued. And I think that there's also care leadership, right? Who takes on the responsibility of caring for other people? So I think when we think about all those different forms of leadership, it helps to make more visible different gendered or raced forms of labor that are absolutely necessary for life to happen, but are also necessary for those visible leaders to be as visible as they are. So I really just think we have to kind of shift our idea around what leadership even looks like to begin being more inclusive of the kinds of leadership that already exists that just go completely unrecognized for the most part. That was Mauro Cifuentes. Our last guest is Brian Kim, a writer for the California Magazine. I think this. I think that white males dominate leadership roles, um, probably because of history. Uh, for the past five hundred, six hundred years, uh, white nations, European, American, um, have been at the top. Um, so I think it might be. It, it's it's I think it's also a result of the culture. I think that that West the West embraces the individual. It's you know it's about the celebration of the individual, whereas the East is is more about community. Um, so to be in a position of power, to, in a in a sole position of power, is it's it's the greatest good that you can achieve as as a Westerner. So I think you have to look at the kinds of cultures that that spawned, um, that define roles of leadership. I mean, I guess it, it all boils down to education and not instilling in your children this kind of subconscious um, idea that women shouldn't be in leadership roles that only men should be in them. Um, I think as a, when I was in elementary school, um, there was kind of, uh, you know, my friends and I would sometimes make little like snide comments whenever a, a woman in, in, was in charge, maybe. Not, not, not as a teacher, but they, we were definitely like, I think, we were misogynistic. And I think that we were kind of getting the 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 trickle down that misogyny was was trickling down from the people we were learning from. Um, but but I did grow up in, in I grew up in SoCal, but in a in a pretty conservative um, city. Uh, yeah, there are some there are some things that I did I think when I was little and when I was a teenager that right now I would I would kind of find a f- appalling um, some of the ideas I had. 
and I don't think that those ideas came from nowhere. I mean, I think it was probably from my parents and the media that I ingested. Um, but I'd like to think that the education of, of a child in that same school is it's going to be different. I mean, in the same way that, you know, the Disney movies, right, Disney princess movies were only, what, like 20 years ago max, 15 years ago? And in those movies, I mean, I don't know if you would want to show your daughters those movies. Like, I don't think I would, if I had a, even a, any kind of child, any, whatever that child wants to be. I would not show them Disney princess movies, if only to show them the societal impact that these movies could have on them. Because they're kind of, they're pretty disturbing. That was Lori Sulpizio, Stephanie Coughlin, Justin Brooks, Mauro Cifuentes, and Brian Kim on bias and leadership. The poser of the question today was Lori. After my interview with her, I asked her what the corniest joke she knows was, and she told me this. Knock, knock. You know, who's, who's there? there? Um, interrupting cow. Interrupt. <laughs> Next week's question is presented by CEO of Seabreeze Organic Farm, Stephanie Coughlin, asking, if the world's human population is expected to increase from the current 7.3 billion people to 8.5 billion people in 14 years, by whom and how might food be produced to feed the masses? Thank you for listening to this episode of the We Need to Talk series. Our mission is to foster the practice of intentional in-person dialogue within ourselves and our communities, in which we listen to each person as if they're the most important person in the world, suspend initial judgment, recognize that creative conflict is good, speak authentically, and practice equity of voice. For more information or to print out a wallet-sized version of the Thought Lounge Five Agreements of Dialogue, visit thoughtlounge.org forward slash podcast. And until next time, good thinking always.